If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, April the 23rd, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in Hoover's media studio deep in the heart of Stanford University's bucolic campus is Marcos Kunalakis. He is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow at the Center for Media, Data, and Society at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. Marcos Kunalakis is president and publisher emeritus of the fabled Washington Monthly Magazine, and he writes a foreign affairs column for the Sacramento Bee and McClatchy Tribune News. Marcos, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for being. Thanks for having me, Bill. It is one of your columns that caught my attention the other day and prompted this podcast. It is a column that you wrote about one millennia Trump. You suggested that the first lady of the United States, in effect, take a hike. But you oh. meant this in a productive way. You meant that she, <laughs> you meant for her to take a hike back to her native region and get involved. Explain what you're writing about. So, you know, traditionally we've looked at first ladies, and of course it's timely because Barbara Bush is passing this last weekend. If we're listening to this on a timely fashion, uh, this is the right. 23rd of April, mm-hmm. and. Um, Whenever we have a passing of this nature, I think it's it's important that we reflect on the importance of these individuals. And so you have this tradition of First Ladies either volunteering or being deployed in very specific ways. We know Jackie Kennedy used her charm and her language skills to take care of and bring closer France and Latin America. Right. Uh, right. Any number of other First Ladies have been uh, deployed in, in, in multiple ways, and of course, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt being one of the more important ones in her role with the United Nations. So the question then arose for me, well, what about Melania? Here is this first lady whom we haven't really heard much from and haven't really seen, other than this uh, issue of cyberbullying, which she's taken on, uh, we haven't really seen a deployment of her. And so I thought, well, what is the most natural place for her? Right. And that's to go home. It is to go home. She is unique in a couple of regards. First of all, she's a first lady who cannot be president of the United States. That's right. She's foreign born. On the other hand, she is the first first lady, you can argue, who is truly a citizen of the world. Yes. She grew up in Europe and came to New York, and she speaks multiple languages, so she has international outlook. So you think she should have an international role in this White House? I do. And and, uh, for those reasons, Bill, I mean, it really is an absolutely... um, uh, Opportunity. It's an absolute opportunity to use those skills. And be- because it's not just her global perspective, she also has a linguistic ability to enter back into a region which is quite challenging for the United States right now. We're looking at a Central European region, which is where much of the Southern Slavic languages are spoken, mm-hmm. which she speaks as a native language, right. um, which are challenging us, uh, both in terms of our values as a nation, but also our interests, the relationships to Russia, the orientation towards NATO in certain cases. Um, and it is a tradition, as I say, and it wouldn't be out of the pale to see a first lady stepping out into an area where she feels confident, competent, and able to use her natural abilities to try and work in favor of America's interests. So kind of an ambassador at large to Central Europe. Yes. Define define Central Europe for us. So I, in the piece that I wrote, uh, really look at the four Visegrad countries. Right. Um, Visegrad is a city in... It's actually in Hungary right okay. now, and it's a, uh, there is a castle at the top of it. It is uh, uh, 
the reason it's called these are the four Visegrad countries is because they were they were in an, an ancient uh, and a more traditional right. relationship in the historic relationship. Uh, but today we would look at Poland, Slovakia, mm -hmm. the Czech Republic, and Hungary. Uh, and they are all members uh, currently of uh, the European Union. Right. They are members of NATO, and uh, they were all brought in around the same time into the say into these uh, they're Western called, they're institutions. Called, they're called the Visegrad Four, or the Visegrad Group, or the V Four. These are various var variations, right? They formed this alliance about 25 years ago, about 1991. Yes. after the breakup, right? Yes. That's exactly right. And so they exist, and uh, and they've had a very bumpy ride. Uh, after 91, the reason, of course, is that the v communism had ended in that region uh, in many cases because of domestic actions that were taken in Hungary and mm -hmm. the Czechoslovakia at the time, where I lived in uh, 91, and, uh, and in Poland, which, uh, and, and all with varied histories, but nonetheless, they all... Uh, decided that it would uh, align with the West, and after having been behind the Iron Curtain for so long. All right, let's uh, let's look at these countries one by one, Marcos. So why don't you give us a big picture of how they tie into the world of Donald Trump? Let's begin with Poland, which Trump visited in July of 2017, and it was a bit of a bit of a love fest, a bit of a bromance between Trump and the and the Polish people. But something has happened since then. That's right. I mean. Uh, it really was uh, the one place where he visited uh, and had a large um, uh, group of people who were uh, enamored of him and his policies, and, uh, and they reflected that in the streets. Mm -hmm. So uh, Poland, however, has taken a turn towards authoritarianism. Right. It is uh, most disturbingly uh, also exhibiting and expressing action. Uh, orientation towards anti-Semitic uh, uh, policies mm -hmm. within the country, a denial of its history, and also the ability to punish those who, uh, who try to emphasize their, uh, their role uh, during the Second World War. Right, so the flashpoint with the U.S. would be a, a bill which was passed by the lower chamber of the Polish parliament, uh, which was done, I believe, on the eve of the Holocaust, remember it, so this is really a thumb in the eye. Yes. And it's stipulated, and I'll read you the exact words here, that, quote, whoever publicly to, and contrary to the facts attributes to the Polish nation or to the Polish state responsibility or co-responsibility for the Nazi crimes committed by the German Third Reich. And if by doing so, you'd face up to three years in prison. What's motivating the Polish government to do this? It's dominantly a political act. Mm -hmm. uh, as you, and this is not unique for Poland, of course. We're seeing the rise of populism across the world, uh, and certainly in the Central European region. Uh, but in these areas, anti-Semitism plays very well politically. It is a, it is a dire and, and uh, terrible thing to say about this place, but uh, we saw it just recently, and, and when we move to Hungary, you'll see it again. Mm -hmm. uh, it raises its, it rears its ugly head, and uh, it plays well in the hinterland. It is just a, a, a uh, cynical and awful political uh, ploy, ploy. And in Poland, that is the, the Law and Justice Party. Yes. So are they, in essence, trying to wear red ball caps and say, make Poland great again? Is that their, is that their motivation? Yes, I, and they also are dealing in a society that effectively has no Jews, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it is a single, uh, the, there's a, uh, a uni-ethnic uh, face and a uni-religious um, face to the Polish populace. And so it is really batting against a, a boogeyman that doesn't even exist any longer right. as a result of its historic, uh, you know, 
loss of these Jews and, and the murder of these Jews. What would be Polish greatness, Marcos? Because this is a country that, unlike the United States, the United States, we can talk about American greatness and we can go back into a long and fabled history. Poland, on the other hand, has had a very long, difficult history of being sandwiched between two powers, Germany and Russia. If you're a Pole and you're a nationalist and you believe in Polish pride and Polish greatness, what are you? What days are you hearkening back to? So it's, as you say, it's a beautiful country in a bad neighborhood. Yeah. And so they've, uh, but they've had an amazing tradition, both in democratic uh, orientations. They've had uh, a, a very strong political history. Uh, culturally and socially, they've been very successful over time. And they were, uh, for a long time, a, um, a power within that region. Uh, but, uh, but they were always getting uh, the, the uh, bad end of the stick. And so uh, I think that level of pride, and, and it's really more a question of sovereignty, because they recognize that right next door is a country that is not keen on maintaining Polish sovereignty, and it's Russia. Right. Now, we do not have a Polish ambassador right now. I believe George Mossbacher yes. uh, was nominated for the job, but I think it's somewhere in the works of the Senate right now. What are the next diplomatic moves with regards to Poland and the Holocaust and just how how we feel about that country. Well, I think we want to get an ambassador there and everywhere. Right. I mean, that is key. And, and I think Georgette Mosbacher, who is also on the Public Diplomacy Commission, understands at least the need to bridge those social and cultural relations. We have a very large Polish-American population in the United States. Right. Uh, you know, Illinois is a... Is a uh, is a, a, a great place where you often find this this bridging between our two uh, nations. And so presidents in the past have always relied on our Polish-American population, both for political advantage, but also to bridge these, these gaps and to move Poland uh, and to keep Poland in the Western fold. So I think that's one uh, very important aspect of it. The other is the use of our NATO forces. And here, the story is actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Poland really uh, delivers it for what uh, Donald Trump uh, requires of members of NATO, but which they've also committed to, which is participating at a fairly high level uh, in in the uh, in uh, contributing to NATO. They uh, exceed their two percent annual uh, contribution. Uh, there are not many countries that do. It's the UK. It's Greece, but Poland is one of them. Okay. Uh, next country, Hungary which you have a personal stake in. Explain, <laughs> yes. explain your relationship with Hungary. Well, I, I have uh, a long-standing relationship and I have a more recent one. My long-standing relationship is I used to be the Newsweek correspondent in Central Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was in the region uh, between 89 and 91, living in Czechoslovakia, but in Hungary on a monthly basis reporting. Uh, most recently, uh, my wife was the U.S. ambassador to Hungary uh, under President Obama from 2010 to 2013. She wrote a book about it. It's called Madam Ambassador. And um, I, relate, I, I remain related to Central Europe and to Hungary in particular in that I am a senior fellow at the Center for Media, Data, and Society at Central European University, founded by one George Soros. Uh, for the American Marcos who's thinking about moving to Hungary or living in Hungary, uh, <laughs> it's a popular place to go visit. Budapest is a beautiful city. Uh, what is the biggest adjustment to living in that part of the uh, part of the world? Well, for someone who comes from Greek American stock, the food uh -huh. uh, it's a very <laughs> difficult thing. You know that we used to uh, say that there was a 
butter olive oil line in Europe, right? So right. after a certain latitude, you get into the butter region, and, and then below that, you're in olive oil, which is my uh, comfort zone. But I, what few people recognize that there, is that there's a lard belt between the uh, butter and uh, olive oil zone. So um, that was the hardest thing from a personal perspective. Um, but from another, you know, from a more political and uh, from a reporter perspective, it's adjusting, and certainly for Hungary, adjusting to a country that has had a pretty rough century. Right. Uh, it was on the wrong side of both world wars and ended up on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. Mm -hmm. uh, Viktor Orban and the people who live in Hungary, I think, uh, see themselves as victims, mm -hmm. uh, largely for to their history. And I think it's hard for someone who's brought up and raised in, brought up and raised in California and who has Greek roots to understand being on the wrong side of all those historic turning points uh, and understanding themselves as a victim. I'm going to read to you a lead from a column that ran recently in the European version of Politico. And I want to get your thoughts. This is about Hungary. Quote, a divided country where urbanites vote for progressive candidates and rural areas turn to extremism. Two separate societies, each living in their own media bubble. Cultural elites detached from the everyday realities of the countryside. The result? A crushing victory for a hardline conservative strongman. That's what happened in Hungary, where Viktor Orban won a third consecutive term as prime minister in a landslide win. It's what could happen in the U.S. in 2020. Yeah, I think we saw the makings of that in 2016. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is this urban-rural divide which exists at a very high level. There are those who live in Budapest, and there's everyone else. And Viktor Orban, who rightly is a hero of the uh, 89 era, where he uh, spoke to the Soviets and told them that they needed to get out. He took some real political risks and, as a young man, stood up to the greatest empire and force in that region. So he has the chops. He's a trained lawyer. He's a relatively attractive man. He's articulate. And he's clever. And so he has the makings of what you need for a politician. And has tapped in and understands viscerally the uh, understanding of uh, the self-understanding of victimhood that these people in the countryside live, those who recognize that the changeover from the communist era to the contemporary era did not pay off for them. In fact, it was a very expensive uh, change and transition for those individuals. They are not living the dream in Budapest. They do not look like the people that you see in the Viking cruise line ads. <laughs> And so uh, they are, in fact, uh, the, he is tapping into a very deep strain of what it is that's going on uh, within Hungary. And you are right to point out the parallels. Mm -hmm. The economic challenges remain great in the United States. And it's not just in the, in the states that voted uh, for Donald Trump in the last elections. It's true in California, where we have a 20% poverty rate. Right. So, um, so there is resonance. Victor Orban looks into Vladimir Putin's eyes, and what does Victor Orban see? Himself. Himself. <laughs> he is, it's a mirror for him. And, and it's not a theoretical. He talks about uh, wanting to move to an illiberal democracy, and he points to Turkey and China and Russia as the perfect models for the type of government that he would like to run. This is what I have a hard time getting my arms around. You would think that given the events of 1956, the events of 1968, there would be within Central Europe just a revulsion against the idea of getting close to Russians and certainly a former KGB officer. 
Yeah, it's a funny thing, and I think what Orban is trying to do is play both sides. He looks to Russia and to Putin in particular as a model for how he would like to run the country, but he does not look to it as a model for anything else. Uh, in that in that regard, he really looks to the West because the West has been underwriting his government, and I, right. by that I mean the European Union. There are grand subsidies that have really rebuilt the city of Budapest and the rest of the state, uh, including football pitches and other things that have been built around the country uh, that have been subsidized by the Europeans. So he'd like both. He'd like to be the autocratic leader that he really aspires to be, and he is successfully achieving with his two-thirds majority in parliament. But at the same time, he kind of likes this Western idea of subsidizing uh, his government and his and his, pol and his uh, party. Okay, let's shift to Slovakia, uh, which is not to be confused with Slovenia, which I believe is Melania Trump's. That's country, exactly right, right. They, right, and they are often confused. Yeah, right, but Slovakia is the other half of what used to be Czechoslovakia. They had their velvet divorce. Madeleine Albright once called Slovakia the black hole of Europe. Oh, goodness. I did not know that. No, not nice. What could she have been referring to? Just the fact that this is sort of the font from where trouble begins in Europe or just that it's uh, just a constantly embattled little piece of land? So Slovakia has a, a, a pretty contemporary history. I mean, it was not, you know, it was a part of the larger Austro-Hungarian Empire. Right. Uh, a big part of it really has a number of Hungarian speakers who are still living it, ethnic Hungarians. Right who live within the Slovak region, and they have not had a very strong um, uh, contemporary history. I mean, they, were, they, they really were overrun by both sides of the, uh, of the Second World War, the Nazis at first and then the Soviets afterwards. So uh, they have not had a very strong and, and powerful uh, autonomous sovereign history. Who was Jan Kuciak? So he was a journalist. And uh, I say was because he was recently murdered. He and his girlfriend were in their apartment, and it is suspected that mafia, or and they may literally be mafia uh, people, who went into their apartment and shot them dead. The reason was he was an investigative reporter who was investigating the relationship between government figures, senior members of the Slovak government, and um, underworld figures who were siphoning uh, uh, funds from the government and also uh, involved in other nefarious activities. And he was getting close to the story and close to the leadership. Right. And so he and his fiance were, were killed in his home. This sparked protests uh, in the country in March. Sometimes Marcos protest in a country are over a single incident, but sometimes they're a symptom of a larger disease. Is that the case here with the Slovaks? Yes, they have been voting for a strongman. Mm -hmm. The same thing that we've seen in the rest of Central Europe and in other parts of Europe as well. Uh, tens of thousands of people came out to the streets of Bratislava. And in fact, Robert Fico, who was the prime minister at the time, a former boxer, a pugilist, mm -hmm. um, was uh, resigned. And so uh, you are seeing that, interestingly, uh, there is now some popular movement, but mainly in the urban center again. Right. And it's unclear if the rest of the state will support the types of uh, democratic uh, rejuvenation that at least those protesters are looking to achieve in Bratislava. 
Okay, and the fourth country would be Czechoslovakia. Here, Donald Trump has a very personal connection himself. One is <laughs> yes. former wife Ivana. That's right. Who I think told reporters, Marcos, that he had offered her the ambassadorship. Yes, she both told the reporters, but also the president at the time had gotten mad at her for not taking the uh, ambassadorship. So, so. You, you think he actually offered it to her? Well, that I'm unclear, but it seems it certainly was the rumor, and, and certainly the president of the Czech Republic believed that she was in line for it and was really upset that his one shot at having a direct line to the president of the United States uh, said it wasn't going to be, it was going to be too much work. And right. so uh, she, she uh, uh, did not take the job. And ex-wife as an ambassador would probably be a first in American history. Uh, I think that's right. We've had, yes, I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of first here. Uh, there's also a question of Ivanka. Ivanka claims to know a little bit of the language. This has been kicked around whether or not she does, but in theory, he could deploy Ivanka to Czechoslovakia. Yeah, I mean, to. look, this would be, I, and I'm, I, I'm actually in favor of all of these ideas because Whenever you have an opportunity to build that personal relationship between a White House and a country that is allied, but you want to remain allied and you want to get closer to your positions, use it. Uh, we do it on, on a traditional basis with the types of uh, ambassadors whom we deploy around the world, but none have we had that have had this level of relationship. I, you can argue, you know, in uh, Hungary we deployed um, Burt Walker, who had a relationship to uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and to George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you see that a lot. It, it was also uh, true in Paris, where he had sent um, uh, our U.S. ambassador was a relation to uh, George W. Bush as well, and a former co-owner of the baseball team in Texas. So um, so this is not unusual, right. and, it, and it usually proves to be quite successful. And uh, in the terms of Czech leadership, you have Andre Bobby. Yes, Bobby. Excuse yeah. me. And he is a billionaire. Yeah. He says he wants to run the government like a business. Yes. Stop me if this sounds familiar. And he has legal problems. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and that's true of all of the Czech leadership currently, right? They are much like all of the Central European. Well, with at least Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, they do have uh, a relationship to where uh, public funds end up. Uh, in uh, the pockets of those who are very close to them. So essentially this is sort of, this is Putin-esque. Yes. yes, and in fact, it's even worse than this in this particular regard because there is a direct relationship between Putin and the leadership in the Czech Republic where they are, uh, it is really just a love fest. And, and one of the things that's key about all of these countries is that they all hold the ability to throw in a fly in the ointment of our relationships, whether it be in the European Union or in NATO. They hold, uh, in certain instances, a veto in terms of the question of sanctions against the Russians. Uh, but in other cases, they can really slow things down in terms of our uh, policies and our defense deployments. Okay, let's take this now in the bigger picture. If we'd been having this conversation in 1991, we would have talked about lands that are now free. They're no longer former Soviet republics. They now want to be democracies. So the United States had a very vested interest in terms of helping these democracies get their feet, get off the ground. But here we are now in 2018, and there are two questions. Number one, does the United States have a strategic interest in this part of the world? And secondly, what is Vladimir Putin thinking? Because when we look at Putin, what do we think? We think maybe he's looking at the Baltic republics. Maybe he is uh, interested in just torturing the United States through hacking and things like that. But does he have a design? Does he have an appetite for this part of Europe? I, I don't think he has a territorial design per se. Right. But I do think he wants to uh, undermine the 
the strength of the Western alliance and of the European Union for personal reasons, both personal and for his own national reasons. The weaker the West is, the stronger he can appear within the region. And, and that allows him to leverage those resources that he does have, mainly energy resources, uh, but also to be able to have policies that are favorable towards Russia. Right, right now, one of the things that really bothers him most are the sanctions against the Russians. Mm -hmm. The sanctions remain in place because there is a level of unified policy being uh, formed in the Western alliances, in NATO and in the EU. So to the degree that he can undermine that and weaken democratic institutions, not just in Central Europe but in the rest of Europe, he will pursue that. And he has pursued that. And partly he's doing that by supporting fringe parties within all of these countries. And again, it's not just Central Europe, it's throughout Europe. Right. Now, one way Vladimir Putin can meddle, as we've seen in U.S. elections, is through what we would call fake news, in particular stories propagated by RT. Yes. Is he doing that in Central Europe? And then let's segue and talk about RT in a bigger picture. And I want to get into the book that you're about to have published in a couple months. Yeah. So there is, uh, so there's a weakening in general of right. the press in all of these countries. And one of the first moves that, uh, for example, Viktor Orban took when he came into power uh, was to, in fact, create a, a uh, body that would oversee the media within right. Hungary. And it caused uh, huge trouble for him. But uh, this is true of all these countries. They are looking on clamping down on the, on the media in general. We saw in Slovakia that it goes to, as far as murder. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so yes, the weakening of the press is a key part of the strategy, both for those who are domestic leaders, but also from the Russian perspective, from Putin's perspective. Right. So your book coming out this summer, Marcos, it's called Spin Wars and Spy Games, Global Media and Intelligence Gathering. Did this just dawn upon you after the last election, or is this something that's been percolating with you going back to your, your days as a correspondent? So I started the book about six years ago. Six years ago. Yes. Okay, so this is before, before Donald Trump, before fake news, and before Facebook and hacking and the whole the whole show we have going on today. That's exactly right. And I was looking at the demise of the Western business model in media. And it was apparent, and it should be apparent to anybody who's out there, that, um, that media has, has been challenged in the United States and in the Western world because it is a market-based media or uh, You're talking specifically about American media cutting back on foreign bureaus. The Los yes. Angeles Times is a good example. The Los Angeles Times back in the day had foreign bureaus all around the world. That's exactly right. And it's not just in the United States, and it's mainly these institutions. Mm -hmm. Some are able to stay alive, but for right. the most part, uh, and it's true for the <coughs> organizations that we work for, the McClatchy's closed their bureaus recently, or actually a couple years ago. So this is the trend, is that we're seeing less and less uh, ability for the West to both collect and then report and distribute news about the, about the world in general. Right. Um, and we usually feel that that's important because it informs a, an electorate and we, it allows the citizenry to make informed decisions about what kind of foreign policy we want. Right. At the same time, what we saw was an exponential rise in Russian and Chinese media. This is RT and CGTN, right? That's right. So RT in uh, Russia and Sputnik, which is another uh, uh, Russian media outlet, right. and then CGTN, which used to be CCTV in uh, China, along with their news organization, which is a type of AP, uh, a wire service called Xinhua. Mm -hmm. These organizations have exp expanded enormously at the same time that we've been cutting back. So the question then arises, what does that mean for the world? Right. 
And so <laughs> I looked at what, does, what do our organizations do and what have they done? Well, of course, they've done the soft power part of politics. They've gone out into the world and they've represented, they've shown the flag, they've, they've uh, informed the American citizenry. But another part which we, and I say we because I was a foreign correspondent for most of my career, right. one of the things that we don't talk about is the ancillary work that we do. And that is we engage ourselves in diplomatic functions. At times I've been in a place where a leader has asked me to pass th something along to my embassy mm -hmm. or to others within my government, and I have done so. Right. But they've also been quite active in terms of working as intelligence gathering operations. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, from a Western perspective, we look at open source intelligence. So the stuff that we put in the newspapers often finds its way into Langley or it finds its way into the presidential daily briefing. And policymakers rely on that information because they can't often get it to make informed decisions about the types of policies that the United States and our Western allies will pursue. So how are RT and CGTN financed? So they are state-run organizations. They are not market-based organizations. And the amount of money being spent on them is incredible. Right. Uh, it's hard to get the numbers because they guard those numbers very closely. But uh, it is a gr much greater uh, number than, say, the BBC World Service or Voice of America or any of our state uh, underwritten uh, media. So you go to work for RT or CGTN and you work for the state. That's and right. That is exactly what you're doing. Does the state edit what you're doing? Does the state watch over what you're doing? Does the state write your script for you? How does it actually work in terms of correspondence and what we would call, quote unquote, reporting? So there's two layers of it. One is there is an editorial layer that mm -hmm. decides the type of stories you are going to pursue. So right. C CTV, CGTN in Washington, D.C. has an editorial layer of Chinese individuals who decide, in general, which directions you are going to do it. There's a second part of this, which is the self-censorship layer. So you watch CGTN, uh, and you are not likely to see a whole lot of stories on Tibet, right. or on democracy movements, or uh, on Tiananmen Square. Uh, it's just not going to be there. The same is true if you watch RT. There's not going to be a whole lot of stories on revol you know, revolts in Crimea or wars in Ukraine unless they are, of course, uh, aimed at undermining Russian um, credibility and, and, and uh, the Russian nation self-perception. What category does Al Jazeera fit into? So they're interesting because they are not uh, based out of a superpower. They come out of Qatar. Qatar right. And so uh, Russia and China, however, are great nations. So mm -hmm. I have always looked at Al Jazeera as more of a lobbying organization right. uh, rather than as an organization that has specific interests in, uh, in executing diplomatic functions or in being a full-blown intelligence gathering operation. Is there still an Al Jazeera America or is that folded? You know, I don't even know because they lost their distribution service and right. I thought they were shut down, but I'm not sure if they still still exist in some form. This has always been an ethical quantity, at least I've considered an ethical quantity. Do you, if you were asked to write for them, if you were asked to be a talking head for them, would you do it? So I don't. Yeah. I have uh, I have bookers who I work with who book me on a number of TV uh, programs, but I have explicitly told them that I will not be on any of those programs. Why? Because uh, certainly CCTV and, uh, and RT are strict propaganda or... Uh, um, outlets in the United States, but they also perform these functions of intelligence gathering within the nation. So I feel that it is not my role to uh, help with their operations and their uh, 
and their attempt to um, achieve their goals of undermining Western democratic society. Okay. So where is RT directed right now? Where is it pointed as interested? Is it U.S. elections? Is it Central Europe? Where exactly are they, they directing their, their efforts in CGTN? Where, where, where are they likewise focused? So again, on two levels. On one level, there's what goes on that we don't see, which is right. the intelligence gathering, right? So they are use, deploying their reporters, they're deploying their bureaus to do the nuts and bolts of what any intelligence organization would do in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. They are non-official cover individuals who are performing this function. On another level, they also look to these institutions the way that we've always looked to our institutions, which is as, so as a soft power, um, uh, soft power institutions that allow you to spread your perspective on the world. From an RT perspective, that is muddling, mudding the waters, right. uh, creating uh, doubt about certain actions. We could just take the uh, poisoning in Britain, for example. Well, the way that they're muddying that whole issue, where it seems that our intelligence, the Western intelligence and the Western powers have agreed, for whatever reason, for whatever intelligence they have, that it, is, it was, in fact, Russia that was behind the poisoning. Right. The Russians are saying, we're not so sure. We think that, in fact, you guys were behind this and that you're using it as a false flag to try and uh, punish us further. So what is CGTN trying to, quote unquote, set the record on? Uh, so I think they're really trying to set the record on uh, historic realities on the South China Sea, mm -hmm. proving that the South China Sea has historically been a part of their uh, sovereign territory, right. the Nine Dash Line. They are setting the record straight on Tibet and how important uh, it has been to its, uh, its, its territorial integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're setting the record straight on trade policy and you name it when it comes to the United States right. so that they can present the alternative uh, and their perspective on how the world really looks and works. Now, does this actually work within these states, Marcos? George Orwell would suggest that you could set up a state and have a media control how people think and ultimately brainwash the population. History suggests otherwise. History suggests that Chinese people want to put satellites on the roof and find news elsewhere, and people will get radio sets and try to dial into the BBC or Voice of America, what have you. So what say you? So there is some of that, and, and I think it's very difficult. So what we've always considered is that we've been able to affect a population's interests in its domestic population. And, and, and what's different is that the United States has never been subject to that in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. This is a relatively new phenomenon. We are not as sophisticated when it comes to understanding propaganda. Those countries that you just talked about, China, Russia, have experienced propaganda in its highest form and have actually lived through a life cycle of propaganda and are understanding that there are alternative news organizations. So what the West tries to do is create surrogate news and information uh, operations that are a little more objective in their approach. What's coming the other way, however, is relatively new. And we're showing that not just because of what they're putting out, but because of the ability to leverage social media, which is a secondarily a brand new phenomenon that we've never had, are able to actually not just amplify things themselves, but use the native forces that exist here mm -hmm. to amplify it and to focus on the filter bubbles and to really have uh, quite a bit of success 
I think, in, in achieving their goals. Let's take North Korea as an example. One aspect of trying to change North Korea, which I think people overlook, is, okay, you can topple leadership, you can even physically impose your force upon them, but you're dealing with a population, Marcos, that for the better part of 70 years has been getting its information one way and being learned to think one way. You're now asking them to change their mindset. Very difficult. But if Donald Trump were to sit down with Kim Jong-un, how would the Korean media report it? Uh, whatever way Kim Jong-un wanted them to report it. I mean, if he sits down with them, then he will report it as uh, Donald Trump finally kowtowing to to, uh, Kim Jong-un and finally recognizing the power of the North Koreans and and, uh, legitimizing in an international way uh, Kim Jong-un. We've seen this in the the few times that a president has shown up in... uh, North Korea, usually to pick up a hostage or two. Uh, you know, they're set before this grand hall in, uh, in Pyongyang and made to seem quite ordinary right. in the grandeur of the Northern Korean setting. And finally, let's talk a little bit about the courting of American journalists. As we're talking about foreign entities, let's talk about here in the United States. I got a call from the FBI after the election. Mm-hmm. My first thought was, what have I done? <laughs> My second thought was, okay, relax. There's probably somebody you know who's up for an appointment in the administration. Yes. They're doing a background check. So I met the FBI, had coffee, and it was something I was not expecting. They were doing background work on the Soviet uh, embassy in, in uh, San Francisco. Yes. And what they were after in particular was apparently there were people working in that office in San Francisco who were trying to get to people who were quote-unquote thought leaders. Not that I'm a thought leader necessarily, but I write op-eds as do you. So in theory, this is somebody who can be a vehicle for, uh, for conveying opinions. So they were asking me how many times I had contact with Russian officials in San Francisco. And I thought about it for a second, and sure enough, whenever I would do an event at the Commonwealth Club, there'd always be some sort of shadowy guy from the Russian embassy there to listen. He'd come up to me afterwards and say hi, and say, next time you're up, let's have a cup of coffee. So I'm not sure they're trying to recruit me for Vladimir Putin's bidding, but they were clearly interested in what Americans were writing about. Yes, and this is really the case. And so when you broaden the number of individuals who can show up to the Commonwealth Club or the World Affairs Council right. with your news organizations, and you're not, you're not worried about the official cover that you have to have when somebody works out of the consulate, then you actually Im- increase the number of nodes that are bringing in the type of information or pushing out the types of uh, approach that you want to the rest of the world. Okay, final question. I don't want to give away any to the book, but what is ultimately the free world's pushback to controlled media? Do we have to have a reinvigorated voice of America? Do we have to get in our own business of doing American propaganda overseas? What would you recommend? So two things. One is I think we have to recognize what the others are doing. And in the appropriate cases, apply the Foreign Agents Registration Act. We're doing that with RT right now. I think CGTN and Xinhua also need to be put under that umbrella so that they are recognized for what it is they do. They are foreign agents. Uh, Secondarily, I think there has to be a means by which we strengthen our institutions, our media institutions that are non-state because they are really quite strong and and perform an amazing function. But the business model isn't working. So how do we create the types of economic incentives for them? We've done it in the past. We've had things like joint operating agreements that allow newspapers to create virtual monopolies so that they can function. We've had uh, franking operations that allow for magazines to send things out inexpensive. So it's not 
unusual for the state to recognize the important role that media plays and that institutions play within our society. There has to be a reimagining of how do we create those types of institutions to reinvigorate those institutions because the function that they perform is so key and vital in our democracy. Uh, couldn't you also say, Marco said, it's a call for a few good men. Jeff Bezos, for example, look what Jeff Bezos has done for the Washington Post. And there are people who love the Washington Post now and hate the Washington Post, but he has reinvigorated that newspaper. Absolutely. And it's what uh, a number of us, I, I use my myself as an example because I also did the same at the Washington Monthly, right. an institution that was really on its on its uh, last legs, and we were able to turn it into a 501c3. Yes, yeah. you have to become uh, committed to these institutions, you have to recognize the important role that they play within our society, and you have to be imaginative in terms of how you can change over from what used to be these insane profit margins that you got from the advertising model uh, that no longer exist today. Right. So, you know, getting back to California, Marcos, the Los Angeles Times is a really interesting example here because they now are under new ownership. Yes. Uh, a very wealthy individual, and they're having a conversation about what the identity of the newspaper is. Is it going to be an investigative newspaper? Is it going to be just a Los Angeles newspaper? Or is it going to look at the world beyond California? Yeah, and I'm curious to see how that's going to work out because uh, California, of course, and you say this regularly on your program, you recognize the right. virtual nation-state uh, approach that the United that California can play, uh, and so the heft of this state and the international engagement of this state is so key. Uh, that having a paper that is able to actually bring back from the world the type of data right. that uh, our leadership will need, and I hope my wife is a part of that leadership going forward, um, is, uh, and I say that because my wife is running for lieutenant governor this cycle, and you know that, Bill. Um, uh, but yes, we need something that represents uh, California at its greatest and at its most powerful. But boy, if there's a disconnect, it's here in Silicon Valley. The San Francisco Chronicle is a ghost of what it used to be. The San Jose Mercury News, likewise, a ghost of what it used to be. These newspapers, when you pick them up on a daily basis, Marcos, their overseas coverage, it's thin. That's right. And you can argue that, of course, you're getting some of this online these days, but there has to be the ability to regionalize and to localize right. and contextualize what goes on in the rest of the world so that it's relevant. And you often don't find that within the large sea of information that you have on the internet. Okay, I know I keep promising last question, but <laughs> to those who want to really study the world like you do, where do you turn for information? So I have to go to multiple sources, and uh, I read foreign papers as well as uh, papers within the United States. And when I say papers, they are not on paper necessarily. They are online. Mm -hmm. um, I read a number of languages, so I triangulate my information, uh, oftentimes from European sources. Um, and I also do go to uh, native Russian sources to look at what it is that they're saying because I have to understand their approach. My, my real uh, Achilles heel is I can't speak Chinese, uh, but my children do. And so we will occasionally turn on uh, television and watch the native Chinese broadcast to get a perspective of how they're looking at our world. Fascinating. Marcos Kudalakis, thanks for dropping by. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Marcos Kunalakis and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. 
The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. Marcos Kunalakis is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at KunalakisM. I'm not going to spell Kunalakis for you. K-O-U-N-A-L-A-K-I-S. Did I get that right? You did. At KunalakisM. That's the man's Twitter feed. He also has his own website, www.marcoskunalakis.com, and the book, Spin Wars and Spy Games, Global Media and Intelligence Gathering, coming out this summer, Hoover Institution Press. Where can we get it? Uh... You know, I don't know, Hoover Institution. (laughs) We'll have to go online to the Hoover site. But yes, we'll find out soon. Very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.